Hello and welcome to Recovery Internet Radio, broadcast live and direct from Straight Stuff Studios here on a beautiful October evening. Happy early Thanksgiving and uh, Halloween. How's it going with Halloween? I just got ahead of myself. Um, <laughs> thanks for coming and, uh, and listening tonight. Um, thanks for everybody that's here in studio and for all of those tuning in at home or on your, uh, on your mobile devices or wherever you might be. Um, actually, we might be getting to you after the fact here. We've got lots of... Uh, Lots of lots of listens uh, later on to the catalog version of the show, so we really appreciate you tuning in, however it is that you tune in. Well, welcome. We are here, episode number, I'm going to go with 90 right now. I'm calling it Big Nine Zero. You make them up. You I do. You know, but I was making, I, I think I said 89 last week, so if I you're keeping that, track I at home. I 87, and you go by threes. <laughs> I'm not sure how you count. Dude, well, then I go back by five, and then we, and we equal we out. End up, we end up probably about, about right. You know, we're going to save, save our announcements for halftime, but this is an important one for those of you who do tune in live or that show up at the, at the studio. Um, next week, after uh, Daylight Savings Time kicks in, we're going to start the show earlier. 7 o'clock. 7 o'clock. We oh, go live. Yeah. Sunday nights, 7 o'clock. Yeah, because all of our guests usually go to bed by 8. So yeah, we've got to keep it lively while we have, while we have everybody yeah. awake and conscious. Yeah, the but. audience, everybody, <laughs> we're all snoozing by 9 o'clock. So. Well, without, I'm, I'm the only one left awake, and I want to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> so, again, thanks for joining us. Um, please feel free to give us a call. We can take calls live on the air, so I hope you're ready. It, and three, man, two, a great three. idea. About that live. I think you guys we'll talk, talk about, about that about in a moment. That. Yeah, we'll talk about that. But give us a call tonight if you have any comments or questions at three two three seven nine two two nine seven seven. You can reach us and find all our information at recoveryinternetradio.com. But let's uh, let's not keep you waiting any longer. I'll introduce our host this week and every week, Mr. Rick Atwater. You know, and I forgot I forgot to mention that, you know, certain certain of our guests we um you know, some of the topics we have are just not amenable to sound effects. Mm, no. But mm, I don't know, Nan, you I we'll, think that we'll I have think to see. for sound effects. We we could. <laughs> we, we could. <laughs> Someone jumping off a cliff. Yeah, that's, that's, so, just saying. Um, we'll see how. We'll just see how it goes. Okay. But anyway, welcome everybody tonight to our show, to Recovery Internet Radio, and our show, Women's Issues in Sobriety. Um, actually, I was thinking as I after I after I wrote that, I was thinking that maybe I should have put a women's issues in trying to get sober or something like that. But anyway, that's what we got. So that's our tag tonight, A Woman's Issues in Sobriety. Thanks for joining us tonight where we are every Sunday night at 8, except for starting next week it will be 7. Um, and we'll keep it at 7 probably forever. 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 Yeah, probably forever, um, even even when the time changes. The time. What did you guys tell me? The time changes next Saturday night at 2 or that makes Sunday it Sunday morning, morning at 2. Okay, so there you go. And we fall back. Spring ahead. Spring ahead, fall back, So just so nobody gets confused. So that's 7 o'clock next Sunday evening. And thanks to our engineer, Chris, who helps us out, and our si, guest tonight, si, senor. Uh, Nan G. Um, and I, I will repeat one time, we can, you can call in um, if you have questions or comments. Or, as Nan suggested, we have Dial-A-Sponsor. Dial-A-Sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> I want to patent that. Okay. Yeah, you patent got it. You got it. 
We'll have well maybe we'll have a setup where we have a we have a direct line you know to Nan and when somebody calls huh? in goes to her mobile device yeah and Nan goes and Call. does a, a quick sponsor thing. We there get quite go. a few listeners, so if you just want to give out your cell phone number while we're yeah, while we're doing this, you could be a pretty busy girl. Yeah. This is true. Our, our, um, <laughs> our, so our calling number is three two three. Seven nine two two nine seven seven, or you can tweet us live at Rick Atwater. Yeah, hey out there! If you like the show and you like to know more about it, feel free follow us on Twitter and join the thirty three other people that are getting these updates. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna do that. Get in we there. We are, yeah, we are just killing them, aren't we? we yeah, absolutely. Followers. We you could probably tweet enough. I I don't. Well. But when you do, it's incredible. So it's at Rick Atwater. <laughs> if I, maybe I'll, I'll have to get somebody to help me out with that. So, And, again, check us out at recoveryinternetradio.com. That's recoveryinternetradio.com. Okay, thank you very much. And you can get all of our archive shows and recovery resources at that location. You certainly can. So, okay, um, let's, you know, so we're talking to Nan tonight about... Um, Women's issues in recovery, but I imagine we'll be talking about whatever it is we talk about tonight. Sounds good to me. Um, so thanks for coming. I appreciate being asked. Um, so maybe where we could start would be um, like, and a lot of times I'll ask people, was there anything in the, in your history, you know, in the way back that would have led you to believe that you would be uh, become an alcoholic and need to get yourself into recovery. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, some people say no, not a thing. Unfortunately, I was not wise enough to know it at the time because I was only yeah. nine. Yeah. Um, I had my first drink when I was nine years old. And I was living in South America, and my parents were having a dinner party, and they had beautiful stemware, which I thought was quite lovely. And I was the only child at the table. And my folks had four kids and had me 12 years later, so I was quite often the only child at the table. Mm. And um, my dad poured me, I don't know, probably two inches of wine in the bottom of this tall stemware. And I felt very grown up. I felt uh, completely changed the minute he poured it, and I hadn't even drank it. (laughs) And I can remember lifting that glass and taking that drink and feeling a warmth that made me kind of stretch and sit up taller. And I can remember distinctly, and again, I'm nine, I can remember distinctly after drinking this, looking to my left at this gentleman who was an attorney uh, for the company my dad worked for. And he was from England, and he had a heavy English accent, and he was a handsome, dashing man. And thinking to myself, what a handsome man, I think he likes me. And I meant liked me. Mm-hmm. And so it transposed me mm-hmm. immediately. It changed how I felt about my environment, where I was, who I was, and what my role was, that first drink. Why do you think, I mean, <coughs> I, I mean, I know it's conjecture, but why, you know, you hear people say, I, I was born, I must have been born, you know, alcoholic, or I, is that... I have said that. I have said I must have been born alcoholic, but I am one of the people, as a matter of fact, I was talking about this earlier tonight. I'm one of the people that sits around in a meeting and everyone says, well, my mother was alcoholic, my father, that's not my story. I'm the only alcoholic in my family. Mm -hmm. But my dad was a workaholic and every single one of the five kids and both parents have had food issues. 
And mm. I believe I started out with the food issues mm. and discovered alcohol because boys liked me better thinner than chubby. So yeah. I think I found the alcohol as a solution very young. By the time I was 17, I was um, a full-fledged drunk. So. And how did you, well, how did you know that? I mean, did you know that How then? did I know that? Well, yeah. by that time. Like what I would was, other people I said? I was pregnant or... and with a child. Yeah. Um, most people at 17 are not pregnant with a child. <laughs> probably um, not. No. I had been for probably <clears throat> since I was 12, um, my parents entertained a lot. My parents didn't drink, but my dad bought alcohol by the case hmm. for parties. And I would take booze out of the back of the case so he would still <laughs> see the full front. And then when it got halfway gone, I'd twist it around. <laughs> so I had this method of stealing, yeah. and I was stealing alcohol for, for me and my friends. And I would take things like brandy for them, and I would take Jack Daniels for me, and wild turkey for me. And eventually I got to the point where my friends, by the time I was 15, my friends were a nuisance because they would drink and throw up, and I'd have to take care of them. They just didn't drink well. So I started already, as a teenager, stealing alcohol for me to hide from my friends that were drinking with me. So the patterns were there. Yeah. I just didn't know it till I was much older. So it was like the the there was there wasn't alcoholism in your family, but there was addiction. addiction. Absolutely. And that's the thing. I don't know whether that's a commonly understood thing that that's the it's that's the thinking part. And right. if you have the thinking part, it doesn't whatever you add. Yeah, I mean, well, and something worked for you, but not just the the thinking part in that respect. But I think we're also a product of our environment to a degree. Mm -hmm. And my parents had very interesting stories. My mother was the youngest of thirteen children. My my dad was the oldest of thirteen children. My dad started at a a Fortune one hundred company as a janitor when he was nineteen years old, hmm. and retired a senior vice president and the only member of this corporation on the board whose last name wasn't the name of the company. Hmm. And so he was a self-made man with no education. And I think growing up in that environment, it was always um, we're so fortunate, we are so lucky, we are so blessed, we are so this, we're a whole lot of hard work and effort. And yet by the time I came along, you know, they had raised four children in the 40s, and then all of a sudden I, I come along, I was a child of entitlement. I was a privileged kid yeah. and treated as a privileged kid. And when you read the stories in the big book, I mean, that's me. I was... Which story? I am self well any of the stories. I am yeah. the the definition of a selfish, self centered to the extreme, childish, immature, egotistical. I mean, this was me and I mm. that was uh, my environment fostered that. Yeah. I was living in foreign countries, I was chauffeured to school from the time I was six until I was eleven. Mm. Until we moved to a place where I didn't have to be under guard because they were kidnapping American school children. So mm. South America. I had a different childhood. Yeah, South America. Yeah. I had a different childhood that might have impacted my drinking. Sure. Well, it makes sense to me. But you had so. But the other four were the other the other ones stayed were in the states. And they, they were, were married already by the yeah. time we were doing all this, or in college. And they were still in the. We're so grateful. We're so yeah. you know we're so lucky to yeah. be you know. My siblings will say, yeah, for family vacations, we went camping, Nan went to Europe. <laughs> and that's pretty much the way it was. Yeah. Okay. So when you were 17, then you had a kid. I got pregnant when I was 16, and this was back in the day where when you show, you go. 
So I had to quit school, and I never got my, my high school diploma until I was actually sober a few years, and I got it as a gift for my mother. Because if there's anything we alcoholics do is we talk well, and I've always had great jobs. <laughs> you got it as a gift for your mother <laughs> or from your mother? No, for my mother. Oh, okay. I got I my high school diploma for my mother. Uh, yes, she always yes. said, oh, buddy, you should this, you should this. And, then you will be... and I never saw the need for it because I always got great jobs. I always yeah. had jobs that I loved. Yeah. So I never did, but yeah. I went back and got it for her. Well, that was, that was nice. So 17... I have a one-year-old, and I'm already divorced. Hmm. So you actually did tie the knot. I tied the knot. My parents, who I thought were going to flip out, were very supportive and said, whatever yeah. you want, we'll do. Yeah. And Why uh, did you get married? Why did I get married? Yeah. Because it was 1971, and that's what we did. 1971, if you were pregnant, you got married. I get you. Yeah. So I got married, and then three months after I got married, he came and told me he was gay. <laughs> So that marriage lasted 11 months. Yeah, 11 months. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so I'm single, 18, with a one-year-old, one-and-a-half-year-old. Are you living at home? We moved home. My son and I moved home with my parents, who became my built-in babysitters. Mm. So you had moved out prior to 18? Mm -hmm. Moved out. My, My dad put us up in an apartment in Milwaukee, paid for my husband to go to college to be an architect, had all that in place, and then everything changed. That blew up. Mm-hmm. Okay. So and then you came back with a one-year-old. Mm-hmm. And moved in with mom and dad. Yeah. And went right back to stealing the bottles <laughs> out of the wine cellar. Really? Yeah. Sa- same game? Your dad same had, game. Your, dad, same here, game. your dad's a vice president of the freaking yep. company, and yep. he hasn't figured that one out yet. Uh, truthfully, it's interesting because when I when I finally got into treatment, my family was very participatory. Yeah. My dad would look at the counselor with these just sh- the shocked expression. He'd say, I can't understand why she would have lied to us. Why would she have lied? I mean, they just never believed I was lying because that wasn't in their nature. I mean, these were former farm kids grown up, you know, that they just didn't see the purpose in lying. Why would you lie to a parent? Right. <laughs> why? Well, because I don't want you knowing what I'm doing. <laughs> why? So, but, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's interesting how you can go, like, they can be so... Innocent, you know, right. the, the appearance of well, innocence. Well, they had raised kids much earlier than me, too. Yeah. It was a, a different time than raising kids in the 30s and the 40s. Yeah. So, yeah. I know I told my dad when I was 15 that uh, as long as you were driving in a vehicle with a licensed driver, you could drive. And I had a car from the time I was 15. <laughs> you did. Yeah, and he never questioned it. He never questioned it. So... So when I read these stories in the big book about us being liars and, you know, mm-hmm. doing anything we need to get what we want, I related to that. You know, sure. that was definitely me from way little on. Yeah, that's, yeah, that thing's going to kick on. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's like, I would have to say that that's like one notch beyond lying. Yeah. That's. <laughs> That there's some another word for that. They call it pathological. Yeah, yeah. somewhere in there. Yeah. It's more. It's more. I learned that in treatment. A huge manipulation. Mm-hmm. Well, and that too. Yeah. And to my end, whatever that looked like. Whatever it looked like, whatever whatever it was that you were looking for. So from from the time so the, from the time you uh, and then you continue to raise your your kid and live at home. 
Um, yeah, okay. So radio, I never really raised my kids. So, yeah, the radio does not like pick up the facial expressions. My facial expressions, yeah. yeah. So that was a kind of sort of facial expression. Yeah, so let's talk about that. I would do whatever I felt would look as though I was raising my child. Hmm. I was like a Cub Scout leader. I was involved in PTA. I did things that uh, basically would protect what I wanted to do. As long as I put myself out there enough, then people couldn't really question what I was doing in my private time. Mm. The problem is my private time, my drinking was getting more and more Mm. and more and more. And so it was getting harder and harder to justify. I mean, now my mom is laying on the couch with an alarm clock set for 2 a.m. because she's concerned I'm not going to make it home from a bar. You know, Mm. she's concerned for my safety at this point. So I can see the writing on the wall, so I, I and who's move taking, out. And if you, don't, if you don't come home by two, who's taking care of Oh, my mom. Always. Oh, okay. My mom. Your mom mm-hmm. was? So I could see that they were starting to get agitated with my lifestyle, so I moved out. Mm. I moved out, and then what happened is... Do you it, think they were worried? Oh, horribly. Horribly. Yeah. Very worried. They would volunteer to take my son mm-hmm. whenever, uh, primarily, so they would know at least he was safe. Right. Um, my drinking became round the clock at that point, right. and I was enlisting any and all family members to take care of my, my son at that point. And as it progressed and got worse and worse, um, the shame, the guilt that accompanies being a woman right. with children and trying to live a standard that the world sets for you and yet do what your addiction is telling you need to do because I'm already to the point where I'm wanting to drink when I wake up in the morning. And by now I'm 21. Yeah, (laughs) and you can. And I can, exactly. And uh, so I move out because I can see they're going to kick me out if something doesn't change. I move out and farming the kid out whenever I can farm the kid out. And usually it's it started out Friday, Saturday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then pretty much the kids living with my sister, and I go to visit him occasionally, and then it gets that I'm not even going to visit him. Mm-hmm. So I do what most women do. I got married to get sober. I met a man that didn't drink, and I thought, well, surely I'll get sober if I marry a man that doesn't drink. Hmm. However, he was think, the biggest dope dealer <laughs> in my hometown, so that plan didn't work out. I'm just so well. interested in that because I don't. You know, do you think men marry women who don't drink to get so, sober as much, or is it? Is I it think pretty, it's mostly women. Mostly women marry. We're men. more concerned about how we're going to provide. Men yeah. typically are are better wage earners than women. I think women do it more than men for security and for sobriety, both. Can we back up a little bit to that? You talked about the shame and, and the guilt and stuff mm-hmm. that you felt about the the inadequate mom thing right. or whatever we want to call it. How did that? How did you deal with that at the time, or didn't you even know? No, I knew. I knew. I always knew. Okay. Um, I had a great mom. Yeah. I had a great mom. My sisters were also pretty great moms. Yeah. So I had great role models for my yeah. So there's no escaping. Exactly. My problem was I didn't know I was an alcoholic. Mm. So for me, it became not about I have a disease or I have an illness that totally robs anything of import from me. Instead, it became about a moral issue. Yeah. I have a moral compass that doesn't work. I'm broken. I'm fractured. Right. I can't do this. Right. And the more that would play in my, my head, the more it would affect my behavior. 
promiscuity. The drinking would get totally out of control. Then it's the drinking doesn't numb me enough, so I'm adding drugs to the drinking, trying to just shut off the guilt. And mm -hmm. it doesn't work. It doesn't work because the minute you come to, the guilt is there. So. And do you think, well, And you've all the time got this little face looking at you. Yeah. You know, and that's part of it, too. Yeah, with the big eyes. And that was definitely him. Yeah. What, what is, you know, I mean, I'm jumping way ahead, but what, what does he say about that time now? He, he says, Ma, I'm so grateful you're sober. Yeah. I have long forgotten it. He said, and he also says, I always knew you loved me. But I will tell you this. Uh, I married to get sober and had a child with that man. Mm-hmm. And so there's eight years between my son and my daughter. Mm. My daughter was 10 when I got sober. Yeah. My son was going away to college the day I went into treatment. My relationship with my son is very different than my relationship with my daughter because yeah. my son has never lived with me as a recovering woman. Right. My daughter, my daughter and I grew up together, truthfully, yeah. Yeah. while I was in recovery. I get you. Different, a different thing. Very different. So, Very different trust things too. How so? The does the shame, the guilt, and the shame stuff. Do you think that that affects women more so than than men? I do. I really do, and I think it it affects us in a lot of different ways too. You know, uh, one of the things I know uh, when I sponsor women in AA, I do what was done with me, and that's we go through the book page by page, word by word, until we get through the fifth step. As soon as they're done with the fifth step, I start meeting with them as a group. And we continue through the book as a group because then there is a family in recovery where people have a sense of accountability to one another that's more than just one person. Mm -hmm. so I've always done it that way. And it's interesting when you're working with those women, when you first bring them into the group, the first thing they all say is, I don't really like women. <laughs> I don't really get along good with women. Yeah. I've never heard men say that. Men always get along with men at yeah. meetings. But for us, women are competition. You know, yeah. it's about are we going to win you? Right. And how many in the room are after you at every meeting? Right. You know, and so in the beginning, that's really what it's about. And I think some of that shame and guilt feeds into that as well when we're sober and trying to repair some of these relationships. Because mm -hmm. I treated women very badly when I was drinking. Because very badly. women were competition. Competition, competition for men? For, for a men's affection, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or whatever. Right. Or, or just attention, you know. Right. We're attention seekers in the bar as well. So if you're a bar drinker, and I was a bar drinker. So, yeah. So, so I guess, I mean, I've heard the term male dependent. Yeah. As, I mean, is that a term you use or do you think about it that way? I or? don't think about it particularly that way because I see that changing. Mm -hmm. And although male dependent is what it is, that was so not me. I mean, I was very independent, fiercely right. independent uh, to the point where I sabotaged relationships with men because of my independence. But yet society always said, you know, it needs to be this way. So mm -hmm. there's that pressure on women to conform mm -hmm. to what the media has told us is correct. You know, and again, this is, I got sober in 89, so we're talking a much different time than even today. And the women that came before me had it even harder. I mean, think about Marty Mann being the first woman in AA and having the women's husbands decide that it's okay for her to go into that meeting with the men. Is that the way that That's worked? That's the way it worked. 
They had to, they take had a, to they agree. Had to take they a group kept her conscience. in the kitchen they, first, yeah. and they had to agree. The women had to agree that it was okay that she went in there with the men. So, I mean, it's gotten much, much better. It's gotten much, much better. And I'm one of those women that oh, I don't go to women's meetings. <laughs> you know, now my home group is a women's meeting. Yeah. I had to learn how to love women. I mm-hmm. had to learn how to let them be my friend and learn how to be their friend. Because I never learned that when I was drinking. You know, it was, I was drinking with the guys. I was one of the guys. And Yeah, and I can hard. see where, you know, like, you know, a, a man becomes uh, an and in a way, kind of a means to an end. Exactly. More, you know, so that's exactly. something that you can use to get where you need to go. And women are, I don't know, in some other category, right. but not that. They don't have anything you want, right. I guess. Well, other than maybe that guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which means I'm going yeah. to have to step yeah. all over you to get there. And, you know, the very first meeting I ever attended, my, my second husband, when we were separated, ended up going in for treatment for cocaine addiction. It was my first experience with treatment. We're already separated, but we always remained good friends, and, and we raised my daughter together. Mm-hmm. Uh, even after he was remarried. We remained good friends, and so he's going in for cocaine addiction, and he says, will you come and support me as my family member? I said, sure. So they make me go to this Al-Anon meeting. So my very first meeting was actually an Al-Anon meeting, and I'm sitting at the pit in Parkside Lodge in Janesville with like six women and one guy, and they're doing this Al-Anon meeting. This is going around the room. I'm listening to these women talking about their husband, and I'm thinking, I bet that's that tall guy I saw. He was cute, yeah. and I think I'd like him. Yeah. I think I'd like him. So I'm taking mental yeah. notes right. of these losers, <laughs> up there, you know, yeah. their husbands. And I sure. should have known. You're in the wrong room, sister. Yeah. You're in because I'm relating to what they're talking about with their husbands. Yeah. <laughs> Treatment love yeah. affair. Yeah. But I never knew I was an alcoholic. I honestly did not know I was an alcoholic. I'm drinking like a fish. I am blacked out every day, and um, I'm never, waking up shaking, and it never occurred because I've never heard the word alcoholic. Well, no one in my family. That, I mean, I can understand that because where you came from, that no. wasn't there wasn't no in the, it wasn't in the consciousness. No. It just wasn't there. No, I was the last one to know. Did the guy? Did the second husband, your your the cocaine dealer? Yeah. <laughs> that guy. Uh, did he, I mean, did he have any inkling that maybe you, you had a problem or did he ever say anything? I'm, I'm pretty sure he probably did, but I don't think he even knew the term alcoholic. He didn't grow up in a family with alcoholism either. Um, he never called me an alcoholic. He would say sweet things like, honey, do you think maybe you drink too much? (laughs) No. (laughs) Not at all. Absolutely. No, in fact, not enough. No. Uh -uh. And I tried to not drink when I got pregnant with my daughter. I didn't drink while I was pregnant with her. And like I said, I married this man to try to get sober. I call it the Susie Homemaker phase of my life. And mm-hmm. and I cooked and I cleaned and I baked and I was the perfect wife and I was stark raving sober. I was insane. And so I finally said to him one day, honey, I think I should get a little part-time job. I, I got a little part-time job, ten and bar at Nina's. <laughs> So that was my Friday, Saturday, and then I said, honey, they asked me to shoot pool on Sunday night, so I'm going to shoot on it, so now I'm Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then I pick up another night at Nino, so I'm Thursday, and I'm before I know it, I'm right back drinking seven days a week with him. With him? Yeah, married yeah. to him and drinking seven days a week, and he's home taking care of the kids, and I'm out drinking, because he doesn't drink. He's home smoking a joint, doing some coke, <laughs> watching TV, and I'm out drinking. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, and still no 
No, not, a, not idea. an inkling. No idea. And it just gets worse and worse. Now, during this time, I'm hospitalized twice because my heart stops from alcohol poisoning. No clue. People are talking alcoholism. I'm like, what are they talking about? You know, they certainly can't be talking to me. They, they, yeah, they say, they say, they bring it, to it up. The they bring it to me mm-hmm. in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been working for a while at Generous Motors, as they used to call <laughs> it, and I get called into the EAP room, and they say to me, Nan, we think you have a problem with alcohol, and I said, hmm, not me. I don't have. They are taking attendance manually, and the guy holds up my attendance chart, and it's got two rows of red X's. Yeah, Monday and Friday. <laughs> and he says, why is it you miss every Monday and Friday? And I said, because you guys pay me enough, I only have to work three days a week. <laughs> Great, and they said, great. we think you shouldn't work here any longer. And I said, you're probably right. So I quit a job that they tell me now I could never have gotten fired from. <laughs> you managed to get fired. I managed to walk out. Well, here's what we're going to do. Um, so we're about at the point where, because I, I want to spend the, you know, the next, sort of the next half talking about what happens and what, what your recovery looks like and you know, how, that, how that occurred. So let's take a break. We're going to listen to, what are we going to listen to? Miss Etta James. Etta James. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Song. Summertime? At last. At last. Yeah. Okay, good. That's, we'll do that, and then we'll come back and pick up where we left off. Sounds good. We good? Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the tunes. We'll be back in a moment.
Thanks for being with us tonight here at Recovery Internet Radio. You can reach us, of course, now or anytime at recoveryinternetradio.com. Listen live, check out our archive shows. The number, of course, is on there, but you can give us a call here right now, live on the air at 323-792-2977. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, please, please follow Rick Atwater on Twitter. Somebody, you know, yeah, somebody, get, anybody. get on it. He's, he's an interesting cat, and, uh, you know, he posts stuff about the show, and, you know, it'll keep you up to date. So we'd love to, we'd love to have a couple more followers, you know. Not to not to sound needy, but um, <laughs> but you do <laughs> just follow us. Anyway, it's, we've been having a great conversation here tonight, and we'll get back to it in just a moment. We have a couple of a uh, couple of uh, words from our sponsors, if you will. I'd like to say a, a couple of words about Sidekicks Mentoring. That's Sidekicks Mentoring. You can check us out at SidekicksMentors.org. It's a volunteer, quote unquote, no cost. I guess that means the same thing. Anyway, uh, we, work with, uh, we work with kids that need a positive role model in their lives. And we've got some really great sponsors, uh, mentors, not sponsors. You know, we, just, we just are trying to help and uh, provide that positive uh, role model for, for uh, young, young men and ladies. So check us out at SidekicksMentors.org. Sidekick Mentors? Yeah. yeah do, sidekick we have a, mentors. do we have a phone? Uh, it's on the website. Okay. I don't know it offhand. All right. Also, want to uh, want to uh, say a quick uh, quick word about Double Take, the band Double Take. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can check them out at doubletakechicago.com. They play a, a awesome music from I don't know fifties till today. To today, I think. Yeah. yeah. They're they're a really great cover band. Um, they're a lot of fun to see. I know you you guys have gone and see seen them several times. And, yeah. Uh, you know, check out their website. I don't, they don't have their upcoming gigs listed yet. I think they've got some new show day shows uh, uh, coming up pretty soon, but they just did one a couple of weeks ago. They play local area yeah, spots. Yeah, Chicago Suburban. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Good Go out and check them out. Yeah, check them out. Check them out. DoubletakeChicago.com. Bob, Bob Five Gallon Harper is the drummer. Mm, Bob. <laughs> we, you have to talk to Bob to, to understand his, you know, his nickname. Yeah. Go out and see him at a show. Say hello. Yeah. Okay, and then I have one thing, and then we'll get rolling here. But uh, this is, uh, for those of you, if you have any chiropractic needs, our friend Dr. Tom Franz uh, in the area here, in our, in our local area, his number is 815-444-9466. If you have chiropractic needs, go see Dr. Tom Franz. And Tom sometimes joins us in the studio audience and does a great Arnold Schwarzenegger um, uh, impersonation, but he's not here tonight, so we can't do that. No, don't go blown. That's that's really Arnold. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's Arnold. That is yeah, actually that Arnold. Is really him? Who okay. is Tom's friend, I believe. That was Tom. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Sorry, sorry, I, I blew, that one, blew that one out of the water because I'm sure you all thought it really was Arnold. Anyway, I want to get back to talking to Nan, um, and where we where we left off was um, at uh, Generous Motors, and your your EAP the EAP intervention, your EAP discussion, and you said? I basically said I work uh, three days a week because that's all I need to live on. (laughs) You pay me enough that I only have to work three days a week. And I walked. I left the job and ended up uh, actually ten and bar full time from that point on until the end. You were making pretty good money. I was making pretty good money. Yeah. I uh, I 
worked another job so that I could have my nights because, you know, I'm relying on family to take care of kids, and now I've got two kids, and uh, relying on family to take care of kids, so I'm I'm working full-time during the day, tending bar and drinking full-time during the night so that I can be gone legitimately. Yeah, so you tended bar so you could you could drink. Yeah, and you know, that's one thing I was thinking about the other day. Bartenders or bar owners were I so thrilled to get me. You know, when I'd go for the interview, oh, you're wonderful. Oh, you're going to be great. I can't wait, you know. And man, I, when I drink, I want everybody to drink with me. I give away the bar, you know. So, and I drink shots. I like to drink shots and I like to concoct shots and get them all drinking. And you get a bar full of people and they're all drinking on you. The bar owner's going to feel it. You weren't the one that made up fuzzy navel. No, I didn't make I made up these shots called root beers though that I swear taste just like root beer but they have Galliano in it and the guy that owned the last bar I attended bar it's and I can't understand how come I went from one bottle of Galliano a month to a case a week. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Who, Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Just got popular. Yeah. So what happened? What how did you get how how did what, what happened from there? How did you get to I know you had talked about you finally there was an intervention. There how did that happen? Um, well, what's progressing at this time is um, I'm losing everything because when you're drinking the way I'm drinking, even though you're tenant bar and working, you're not paying any bills. Uh, I wasn't paying any bills. My folks had, um, as a wedding gift, my second marriage bought a house for us, and I'm losing the house because I've refinanced the house. Hmm. And so it's just everything's going from bad to worse. And I'm now to the point where... I, a lot of times when I come to, don't know if I'm coming to middle of the night, middle of the day, all that kind of stuff that happens at the end of our drinking has been happening to me for a long time. In the midst of this, my, I lovingly refer to her as my control freak sister, my uh, middle sister, the control freak of the family, um, is stopping over at my house almost every Saturday morning. Now, I've tended bar till 2. I've generally been out somewhere till like 4. I've maybe passed out 4 to 5. And she would show up at 8 o'clock on Saturday morning. I did not know this was a part of the intervention routine. Mm. This is planting the seed. Um, Every morning, she woke me up at 8 o'clock and she would drag me out of bed. I mean, literally drag me out of bed and lean me against my kitchen counter and she through a veil of tears would say to me do you not see what you're doing to mom and dad do you not see what you're doing to your children do you not see what you're doing to yourself you are going to die and i would look her right in the eye and i would say her nickname's buck and i would say buck i like to drink and i'm good at it mm-hmm. and i meant it mm-hmm. i meant it sincerely mm-hmm. And, you know, the book talks about the frothy emotional appeal. I'd had the frothy emotional appeal at this point now for years. Yeah. Because now I'm in my 30s. I've been doing this for over a decade, you know. I've been doing this really since I've been 17, other than a little break from when I had my second child. And and um, I didn't know it. At that time, they had reached out to a man that was my eighth grade math teacher and gotten information about uh, doing a, a an intervention. Why him? He was a recovering guy? Or? He was a guy that no. they knew didn't drink and knew used to drink. Oh, That's okay. All they That's knew. all they knew. And so they called him, and he's considered something of a saint in Janesville. Tom yeah. M., he's long gone now, but... Um, He's had impact on most people in Janesville's recovery. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he um, 
reached out to uh, Parkside Lodge, who then got in touch with the same guy that held up my absentee chart at General Motors, Marv W., and um, they started playing a little intervention. So my brother would fly in from New York, and my sister would drive up from Iowa, and the whole family would meet with Parkside, and this went on for three months. Planning this, and they're learning about alcoholism the whole nine yards. And my sister's coming over on Saturday and shaking me and telling me all this. And stuff. you don't know any of this is going on. I have on. no idea. My parents start proceedings to have my daughter taken away because my son's getting ready to go away to college. And, you know, he's Your pretty much. Ten at this my point. daughter is 10 at this point. And uh, so the only thing I know is one day I, I had a very serious injury in one of my last. Well, not even one of my last drinking escapades. About a year before I quit drinking, I was frolicking on a hillside with a young man behind a bar after drinking all day, and I tripped and fell and fractured my right ankle so severely that I almost lost my foot. When Mm. I pulled my foot, my leg up on my knee, my foot fell on the ground, so I had like three inches of flesh holding the foot on. So I'd had multiple surgeries on this, and I'd had multiple surgeries that I'd kind of scammed to stay out of going back to work full time, you know, so I could sit in the bar all day, because now there's nothing I can do except drink. I can't work a job. I can't hold a job. I can't hold a thought. You know, my mind races uncontrollably. All that stuff that happens with chronic alcoholism is going on, you know, and I look like death warmed over. And um, what ends up happening is I have a doctor's appointment. I have metal in my ankle that the doctor's supposed to take out. I've been there three times to schedule the surgery, and three times he has said, your blood alcohol is too high. And I'm quitting drinking like at midnight, and then I quit drinking like at 10 p.m. the night before, Mm -hmm. and my blood alcohol is still too high. He won't even see me. I did not know he, too, was a part of the intervention. So I go back this last time, and I'm waiting to see him. I've not had a drink since the morning before because I think I'm going to get in serious trouble if I am. So I'm a little shaky. Mm -hmm. I'm sweating profusely. I've got cotton mouth that won't quit. And my brother walks in and sits down next to me. Now, my brother lives in New York. And I said, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm going out to mom's. I'm here just on business. And mom said that you were going to be here, so I thought I'd pick you up. Well, my bright idea is his birthday is August 12th. My birthday is September 7th. It's August 17th. And I'm thinking, oh, they're having a surprise party for us, which to me means money. Check. (laughs) So um, I go, oh, okay. Now, I've planned a, and this, this may be other women's issues, I've planned a surprise birthday party at the Pines Tavern for my fiancé of the moment in that bar. Mm -hmm. I quit driving two years before I quit drinking, but I had fiancés in every bar that would take me home if I ended up in that bar. Right. And they were really there just to be accountable for me. So I'm having a birthday party for him at the Pines. So I'm looking at the clock. Okay, I can get out to Mom's. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. I can pick up the check. Then I can still be out there in plenty of time. So I say, yes, I will do that. I go in and see the doc. I come out. And my son is standing there. And I said, what are you doing here? And he said, I came to drive your car. Now, they all have roles in this intervention Fiasco, mm-hmm. but I still I'm you the still last don't know because the they want to make sure that you don't that have I don't an have a drink route. on the way. Most importantly, right. that I don't stop for a drink on the way. Sure. So um, I drive out to mom and dad's with my uh, brother. My son follows in my car, and I see all these cars, and I think, well, that supports it. There's a party going on here. There you go for and you, for me, yeah. and my brother. In and a way, brother. yes. And. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Um, we walk in the front door, and I walk into the the living room, and it's a great done in a great room atmosphere, and there's 15 chairs sitting in a circle and one empty one. And I see people I have not seen in years. The eighth grade <laughs> teacher. The eighth grade teacher. But, I mean, friends who, one of my dearest friends that was my friend in high school, um, who was just a sweet, sweet, she's a dear friend now, sweet, sweet woman, had one time said to me, Nan, I'm so worried about you because you drink so much and in tears. And so I just cut her out of my life. That's what I did. If you confronted me with my drinking, I cut you out of my life. Sure. And so my parents had seen this before. They had seen friends drop off the radar because of this. So I'm sure, you know, I tell the girls I sponsor, talk about getting any degree of humility. I was eight years sober before it occurred to me what my mother must have felt like waiting for me to walk in that room. What would she? Knowing, what do you think she felt? I think she was scared to death. That what? That I was not going to seek help, and they had agreed that if I did not seek help, they were to cut me out of their lives. That was the plan. That was, that's what she would have been facing. That's what she would have been facing. And I was eight years sober before I could actually see what she must have felt right. like, you know, to get to that point of any gratitude for what they went through. But anyway, I walked into that room, and they're all sitting there, and they've all got letters to read. And um, what ended up happening, Rick, was my first thought, and I was not a spiritual woman in any means, any way, shape, or form, I didn't want there to be a God. I mm. didn't want anything to do with any God, because if there was, I felt like my behavior was definitely going to cause hell to pay. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and I you walked You were already in. off the list. So I was already off the list. Yeah. I walked in, the first thing that happened when I saw that circle, I knew what was coming. I didn't know the word intervention. They weren't real trendy yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can remember thinking my first thought was, ironically, thank God it's over. Mm. I sat down in that chair, and the whole time I kept thinking, I know they expect me to do something, but I don't know what. In the meantime, my friend that I hadn't seen in years read her letter and tears and I, you know, tears and tears and I'm feeling shame and sad for them and the whole nine yards. And then my son read his letter, which was a heart wrencher. And then... um, What did he say? Do you remember anything about what he said? That... uh, it was mostly about fear. It was mostly about fear that when I didn't come home at night that he had no idea if I was alive or dead, mm-hmm. um, that he had had to pick me up. I taught the kid how to drive when he was 12 so that he could drop me off and pick me up at bars. So he had a car from the time he was 12 on, really. Mm-hmm. And the times that he had to fight men off me to pick me up at bars to get me out of a bar when he was just a kid. I mean, horrible things like this that I didn't even know because I'm in a blackout, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and of course, I'm thinking they're making this shit up. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> they're yeah. making this up. Bunch of drama. Yeah, really, just for attention. <laughs> uh, that's what I'm trying to say, but yet my gut is telling me this is the truth. You know, my gut is telling me this. And then what happened? And the intervention guy, you know, was kind of controlling the flow of everything. He pointed to this woman that I didn't know, the only stranger in the room. And it turns out she was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Hmm. and she shared a little bit of her story. And, you know, she drank like I drank. She described to a T how I felt, and she was a nun. Hmm. She was a nun 
who would get drunk while teaching kids and get physically abusive with these kids. And I thought, well, at least I never got abusive with my kids, (laughs) at least not physically. And for one moment, I felt like I wasn't as bad as her. Yet, she's sitting there, clean-faced, bright, clear eyes, and obviously happy. And telling the truth. And telling the truth. And for a moment, I had hope that that Mm. could be me. Mm. That could be me. So at that point, I turned to this intervention guy and I said, whatever you need me to do, I'm willing to do. So I get up to go to the bathroom and my sister is right behind me. And I said, what are you doing? She goes, I have to come in here with you. (laughs) So that became the rest of the the intervention and it was going to get stuff from my house. They took me directly and I went directly into treatment. Yeah. And, and... So, and then you were in treatment for the 28 days at no, the time? No, I did, I did 34 days because oh. I refused to do a fourth step. <laughs> and you they still, finally said, you're not getting out of here till you do one. And I knew it was a 28-day program, and uh-huh. after 34 days, I finally agreed. So, and you and you told me that you, you still, at some level, weren't really convinced. No, no. I thought they were overreacting. <laughs> I thought that the drinking had gotten a little bit out of hand. Right. But did I see the addiction? Hell no. I did not yeah. see any correlation. Even in treatment, like well, one thing did happen, and this is what I believe. You asked me, you know, how to correlate my recovery, and I'm definitely a person that came, came to, and came to believe. Yeah. Uh, because again, like I told you, no God, didn't want one. Uh, no sense of where I am at all. No real sense of where I am at all in this this disease at all. And yet, my seventh night of treatment, I can remember laying there, and they had given us assignments to read out of the big book, and I'm laying in this room, and it occurs to me that I am seven days without a drink. And I tried to think back to the last time I could remember being seven days without a drink, and I could not remember. I could not remember because it had been at least decades. So you said... Came, came to, came to believe. Tell me what that, you know, tell me what that means to you. Yeah, tell me what that means to you. Well, I think the big book says we must be convinced. We must be convinced that we cannot drink like other people. Hmm. And see, I always thought I could. I always thought I could and I was succeeding. And honestly, what happened with me is when I first started working with a sponsor, because trust me, for two and a half years I tried doing it my way and not using a sponsor, not using the steps, Mm. not using anything except nine meetings a week, stark, raven, sober from one meeting to the next. Mm. No change. But when I finally started using a sponsor and using the big book, The Text of Alcoholics Anonymous, and going through the processes outlined in the book, I can remember Donna looking at me and yelling in my face, if your life is unmanageable, what does that mean to you? What is unmanageable? What is unmanageable to you? And I looked her dead in the eye and I said, Well, I didn't die. And it dawned on me at that moment. At this point, I'm two and a half years without a drink. Right. And, and it that, dawned that's at what me unmanageable at that, meant yeah, you. at that moment that, oh, if I'd have died, they might have been right. You know, if I'd right. have died, maybe I was an alcoholic. Right. And it's like this light bulb. And that's what it's been for me, these itty-bitty miracles, these moments where I have these aha awarenesses in my recovery, that seventh day in treatment, laying there, thinking about that week, and then for the first time reading the story of the jaywalker. And it's like, I swear to God, I could see myself. It's like I came out of my body and I could see myself laying in that bed with the big light bulb over my head going, (laughs) oh, my God, he can't stop. 
and then thinking, well, maybe you can either. But still, maybe. <laughs> maybe. And what was it that you said? You, you said that you were going to meetings, but you, never, you weren't saying you were an alcoholic. No. Saying- I introduced myself as my name is Nan, and they tell me I have a problem with alcohol. <laughs> because I wasn't. And the truth of the matter right. is, I was desperately afraid of what life without alcohol would look like. But still, you're not drinking. But still, I'm not drinking, but I'm also still not recovering. Yeah. You know, it took me two and a half years to get into the steps. Right. So I'm just stark raven sober, no recovery, no solution. And I knew at two and a half years sober, I was scheduled to speak at a meeting at St. Pete's. And I'm on my way there, and I'm thinking about all the wonderful things I'm going to say. No recovery in me at all. But right. I'm thinking about all the wonderful things I'm going to say that are going to save people at this meeting at St. Pete's. I turn off my car, and I'm sitting in the Pines Tavern parking lot. Which was a place you used to drink, right? My haunt. It Mm -hmm. was my bar. And it, I mean, I started to shake. And it occurred to me two and a half years sober that I didn't want to drink. Hmm. It occurred to me two and a half years sober that if something didn't change, I was going to drink. So what happened at that meeting? When I went and shared at that meeting, I told them what happened through a veil of tears. And I could hear somebody in the front row saying, cunning, baffling, powerful. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I became that person in the book. And yep. that's when I became willing to ask Donna to sponsor. And what, what, is, what, what did cunning, baffling, and powerful come to mean to you then at that point? It came to, at that point, it came to mean to me whether I was drinking or not, this disease was going to sneak up and attack me. And that's what it was doing. And that's what it was doing. And that's when I finally saw myself as having a disease that made me bodily and mentally different than my fellows. And that when I drink, alcohol does something to me that it doesn't do to the average temperate drinker. Mm. It creates in me a craving, a thirst for alcohol that can't be sated. It can't. Mm. I want more. And I never once determined when I was done drinking. The drunk determined when I was done drinking. And I would wake up in strange places with strange faces Every time I drink. It's an amazing thing, Rick, but I've never woke up in a strange place with a strange face since I've been sober. Not one time <laughs> that has is, that happened. That is a miracle. It is a miracle. <laughs> is it a is miracle. a miracle. I didn't know that a lot of the things that I thought were morally bankrupting me were actions that alcohol led me to that I never did when I wasn't drinking. Right. You didn't know it was the no. disease that was running the show. I had no idea you thought that the it was disease you. was was what was large and in charge. I just thought it was me. <laughs> it was large it was and in charge. So um, I guess, so one of the things that I would like to do, and, you know, we're, we're, we're closing in on needing to wrap this up, but I would like to, to ask you, um, and I, I generally ask most of the guests to, to talk about this a little bit, as to what, what would you say to, you know, a couple of things that you think are the most important things for people to know if there's a listener out there who is thinking about not drinking, is thinking about recovering, what, what would you say to them? What, what do you think is, is, is an important thing to let them know? Well, the only thing I can share is what's based from my experience. Yeah. And uh, I've been sober for 24 years, August 17th of this year. Hmm. Um. And not always wonderful sobriety by any means, but far, life has been far better sober than it was drinking by a long shot. 
um, I guess what I would share with people, and I, you know, I'm sorry that we didn't get to talk a little bit about how relationships have changed as a result of recovery, um, which is what's outlined in the 12 steps. But if I could suggest to anyone, Alcoholics Anonymous saved my life. Mm-hmm. I can never pay that debt back. And I went in not wanting it. I was going to be a social drinker in a year. That was my plan, was mm-hmm. to stay a year and become a social drinker. But the people in Alcoholics Anonymous welcome, Anonymous welcomed me with open arms and open hearts. And I did everything in my power to drive them away. Everything in my power to make me unlikable, um, everything I could to be rebellious, um, divisive, whatever I could possibly do. And they didn't kick you out? They kept saying to me, honey, keep coming back and let us love you until you can learn to love yourself. And I thank God every day that I listen to that one thing because they saved my life and I believe that. Mm-hmm. Take a minute and let's let's take a minute and maybe you can say um, how relationships have changed. What, what what's the what's the difference? Well, the key thing uh, for me that has changed because of recovery yeah. is, and I don't know about other people, and I don't know about normies. I can only speak for this alcoholic. Normies is that Earth people? Those are Earth people. Citizens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people mm-hmm. that can drink successfully, or mm-hmm. choose the the weird <laughs> ones that choose not to drink, even though they're not alcoholic. There's a lot of them out there that I never knew existed. Um, For me, the thing that changed the most is I never really understood that relationships were about two people. They were about what I give and take and what you give and take. And I always based my relationships on you, what you were doing, how you were doing it, when you were doing it, how it impacted me. And I never really understood my part in relationships. And it's interesting that my part has little to nothing to do with you. It has to do with because of uh, what I choose to have for character, how I show up in the relationship, what I'm willing to bring to the relationship, what my boundaries are in the relationship. And without the guidelines of the 12 steps, this girl would never have been able to define what that looked like. And that's what the steps did for me. And and, and sort of maybe to tie it together with, with the theme, you know, that we have for tonight about you know, women in recovery, do you think that, that, that the necessity to understand how relationships work for you in recovery is, is, a, is p- partly because you're a female or is that across the board? Is that, is there some specific things to being a woman? I think there are. I think there are specific things to being a woman, but I think these are skills that all of us do learn across the board. I think the generous thing that Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me in that respect is to help me build relationships with women who I thought initially were my my biggest adversaries have become my biggest cheerleaders. Yeah. And knowing that they too have the same issues in not being critical, not being judgmental, not being uh, a nag, not being those kinds of things that mm-hmm. we always thought was our role in a relationship, allowing us just to be ourselves and allowing other people to be exactly who and what they're supposed to be. Yeah. Um, we help each other do that. And I would have totally missed all that mm-hmm. had I not been a, a part of AA. 
Well, that's a pretty, that's a pretty, I, I've heard this phrase, something about joining the human race, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. something along those lines. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a fact. Well, I want to thank you for your, your story, your information, your, thank you. your experience, your strength, and your hope. Thank you. So thank you for coming. And um, I also want to thank uh, our listeners out there, whoever you may be and wherever you might be. Um, wherever you at. Wherever you, know, you at. You, yeah. you could follow us at Rick Atwater on Twitter and let us know. <laughs> but not, not wanting to be needy. Um, <laughs> we, yeah. But you can follow us on Twitter yeah. at Rick Atwater. Yeah, um, like. Or you can go to the website at recoveryinternetradio.com and sign up for the reminder that comes out every week. Um, it's a very you. nice reminder. It is a very nice reminder. Did you see the picture? I did. Wasn't that a nice I had picture? people compliment on how good I was looking. Yeah, I thought you'd like it. You were looking good. It was lovely. It looked a little close to the edge. Though. Well, that was on purpose. That would be the Nan. That would be. That would be. The, anyway, thank you for to the studio audience and everybody out there for helping us be a successful little underground support source for the recovering community. We'll email out our reminders for next week's show. Usually they come out on Friday, Friday morning, because if I don't get them out uh, before noon, it doesn't make the other email list that I send it to. So, um, yeah, so Friday. And remember also, uh, just another quick reminder that we're going to go to 7 o'clock next Sunday night, not 8 o'clock, 7 o'clock for those of you who listen live, 7 o'clock next Sunday night. Our times will change. so, again, remember to check our website, um, and remember that we want to hear from you because we want to know where you are because we don't know. Since we're an Internet radio show, we just don't know. We don't know. So we'd like to hear from you if you have questions or comments. And as always, live today, love yourself and your neighbor, and together we'll trudge the happy road to destiny. We hope you've enjoyed the show, and we'll see you at 7 next Sunday night. Thanks. Yay! Yay!